Welcome to the Perfect Ingredient Podcast with your hosts, Jason Tipp from Perfect Company and Anton Nicholas from ICR. So welcome to the Perfect Ingredient Podcast. We're the conversation you need for anyone obsessed with restaurant operations, the challenges operators face, and the missing ingredients they need to solve them. I'm your host, Jason Tipp from Perfect Company, and here with me is my faithful co-host and good friend, Anton Nicholas from ICR. Hey, Jason. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's always good to hang out with you. So let's just take a minute. It's our first time out. Folks may not know you or me. So those of you who do know me, keep your opinions to yourselves, please. Okay. Uh, I am, well, I always tell people this, uh, like most of us, I started as a teenager in restaurant and retail operations. I was a stock boy at a Kmart. And then I graduated to working the fountain at Steak and Shake when I was an undergraduate. And then after graduate school, re-entered the restaurant operations world when I um, when I joined Starbucks um, several years after graduate school, and I was um, on the analytics side at Starbucks for a number of years, and went on to work in executive roles at brands like Potbelly, Redbox, Papa Murphy's. I worked with a great team at a startup in South Florida at Pincho. Shout out to Otto and the team, um, doing fantastic things down there. And the last couple of years have been in restaurant tech, working with Bridge on the marketing side, and now with Perfect Company, which is a restaurant operations workflow automation software platform. That's a mouthful. So that's uh, that's my background and gives you a sense of the folks I'm talking to and I'm seeing in the industry. And uh, Anton, why don't you share yeah. with folks your background as well? Yeah, so I'm a managing partner at a firm called ICR, and uh, we are a, a communications and advisory firm, but I run the consumer group, which really doesn't matter, except what it does mean is that I get to work with a lot of really cool companies in the restaurant space, restaurant brands, everything from fine dining to family dining and uh, fast casual QSR, uh, but also a lot of restaurant uh, service companies, restaurant tech, and so on and so forth. And I come at it from a different angle as well, because I like to eat a lot. I enjoy restaurants. I enjoy going out to restaurants and see what they got going on. So um, that just uh, gives me a little bit of insight into the space and why I'm here today. Excellent. Excellent. Thanks, Anton. So we're going to have a brief chat. Uh, Anton and I always like to talk about whatever's going on uh, in the industry. What's the the current trend? We'll, we'll talk a little bit about some things that we're seeing and have an opinion on. And then we'll have a guest with us today. It's Jim Collins, former CEO of Kitchen United. Um, and we'll get to Jim in just a few minutes. If you like what we're doing, write us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you don't like it, just keep that to yourself and, uh, you know, you don't have to come back. Uh, you can always just change the channel. Let's Email make that us. super clear. If you don't like what we're doing, keep it to yourself. There you go. There you go. You can always email us at perfectpod at perfectco.com if you really feel you have to tell us something you don't like. Again, that's perfectpod at perfectco.com. At least that way we can keep it private and delete it. And uh, I think that's it with the housekeeping. So, uh, Anton, why don't we uh, get in the kitchen and and get into this? Uh, It'd be great if we were in the same room and we were having a couple of cocktails, but hopefully we'll get to that at um, one of the industry events coming back this year. I've, uh, I've already registered for things like RLC. And um, I, I, I saw something for uh, Fast Casual Executive uh, Summit, a bunch of things coming up this year. So yeah. that's going to be fantastic to get back out there and see people. Yeah, the world is uh, opening up again, Jason. We're going to see it in the in the conferences, like you said, uh, you know, RFTC, eventually RLC, obviously the ICR conference, my firm, ICR. 
going to be back in person in uh, in January as well. Should be uh, should be fun. More importantly, it's good news for the hospitality and specifically the restaurant industry that we're starting to open up here and people can uh, start getting out again and enjoying eating out again. Yeah, absolutely. My wife and I went out to dinner for the first time in 15 months last Friday. And we couldn't get into a place that we really wanted to get into. So we, you know, we, we kind of made do with what was available to us, but it was nice just to be out and to be in a restaurant and be around other people. And, uh, so it was, it was good. It's great to have a date again, right? It is excellent. Yeah. You know, before we kind of bring in our, our guest, uh, Anton, I wanted to, you know, just talk to you a little bit of something I've been reading. I, you know, I read in the, in the uh, May issue of franchise times, Nick Upton, and the team had a couple of different articles on ghost kitchens, obviously become a lot more salient over the last year, but more importantly, the, the virtual brands that are coming out. I thought you and I could chat about that. I mean, I, I think it's really interesting, you know, go back five years when ghost kitchens were just coming out and being talked about. I was a little skeptical about whether that would make sense for the industry, but certainly over the last couple of years, we've seen it makes a ton of sense if uh, if you've got a lot of delivery demand. Um, you know, it's basically the modern commissary kitchen that restaurants would have used for catering operations or something like that in the past. And it certainly makes sense for brands that want to extend their footprint. You know, like Wow Bao has had a lot of success or purported success uh, extending their footprint using cloud kitchens. I can probably even order Wow Bao in Portland, Oregon, where I live, which seems really odd, uh, having lived in Chicago before. Yeah. I mean, listen, it was all about pre-COVID in the old days. It was all about, you know, how you, how you capture incremental revenues across the industry and ghost kitchens was going to be one way that you could do it without screwing up your operations. And that was sort of a big dynamic. Of course, in COVID, we all learned that, you know, your only avenue to survive was to make sure that you were doing delivery and off-premise and things like that. And so, you know, there was this balancing act between, you know, turning your existing operations over. What happens when we come back? Who knows? You know, clearly, you know, demand on the off-premise side is going to continue to be there. The hope, of course, is that demand returns on-premise as well. And so then you are still confronted with those operational challenges. I think what's interesting to what you brought up is this notion of virtual brands, which is is in itself, you know, almost a uh, a question for the future as well, because you had no choice during COVID. There was, it was really hard to, to find stuff, but now as people reemerge, do they want to be physically in locations? And does that sort of novelty of virtual now no longer apply? And that's something, you know, is yet to be seen because part of the challenge, of course, is how do you build brand if you're only virtual and the guys that are getting it yeah. right, they're going to get it right, but it's tough. Well, that's the question that pops out to me, both being from the industry and as a consumer, I, I, you know, my wife and again, for the last 13 months, every Friday night, my wife and I have ordered delivery. We talk about what restaurant do we want to order from before we go on the marketplace app. So we're not just opening the marketplace app and right. looking for what's new or just a burger place or just a you know, ethnic restaurant. And so it's funny, I'll, I'll open the app and I'll see names I don't recognize, names that I don't think are local restaurants. Um, and sometimes I don't know if you, you know, everybody does this, but I'll look, you can choose delivery or pickup. And if, and if you're, if you're on delivery, 
DoorDash won't show you or Caviar won't show you the location of the restaurant. So you could be ordering from somebody who's, you know, five miles away, whatever their radius is. Um, but if you choose pickup, it shows you the address of the restaurant. And a couple of times, you know, I'll notice a name I've never seen before. I'll look at the pickup location and it's a ghost kitchen. There is no there's, there. Yeah. yeah there, there, that restaurant doesn't exist. It's a virtual restaurant. And I just think who really wants to order from Joe's burgers, unless you know who Joe's burgers are, you know, I, 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 I get, you know, a celebrity behind a concept, right. There was that uh, celebrity behind that concept, you know, that seems a little bit faddish. I can see, I can see a brand that doesn't have a footprint reaching new markets. I get that. I don't know though. You know, you look at um, a barbecue holdings has now got a burger brand, right. And Brinker's got a separate brand. I mean, all of these major companies have separate brands and then you've got, you know, you've got the whole business at order mark. And I know you, you're out there and you talk to a lot of the restaurant tech operators. You talk to a lot of the rest restaurant chain operators. I mean, what, what are you hearing? What's the thinking out there? It's opportunity, right? And, it, and it's something that people are trying to seize on. Um, but there's just a lot of question marks around it still. And I, and I think that's stating the obvious. I think that to the extent that brand is not about physically being in a location. In other words, it can start with food. It can be a consistency of food that you know you're getting the same kind of food in each market and things like that. That, that can define the brand and maybe you don't need the physical location. I think part of the challenge, again, is about the consumer behavior, though. Where are consumers going to want to go? You and I had no choice on our Friday nights but to do delivery for the last 13 right. months. If we have an option, aren't we going to want to go out again? I think, you know, that, and that's really the, the question that, that we're facing is how is consumer behavior going to shift back? Is the pendulum going to swing all the way back again? Or will people continue to do Friday night orders and go out on Saturday nights? And, you know, there's definitely a lot of that as well, I imagine. There's a lot of opportunity for that as well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I suppose um, right now, while we're hearing that every operator is struggling to hire, staffing is a real challenge. I, I know that um, some of the, the clients, some of the people I know in the industry talking to them about it, it is, it's nightmarish. I mean, I know, I know operators that are, have shortened hours because they just can't staff. And so, and in a situation like that, yeah, if I can have a centralized kitchen that's, uh, you know, putting food out and driving productivity of the labor that's deployed there, that, that seems like an opportunity. The restaurant business has always been razor thin margins based on how do you supply to the demand and where is the demand curve and how do you meet it? And, you know, undoubtedly there are new channels that are now mainstream that perhaps, you know, as little as two years ago, were certainly gaining speed, but weren't cost effective or, you know, frankly, maybe didn't give enough brand to, to brand power to the restaurants themselves. And that's, that's changed. Right. But, but nonetheless, it's still, costs, it's still supply, and it's still trying to meet the demand in a way that you can actually make money. And that's yeah. to be seen. Labor and food costs, the prime costs we always talk and, about, right? And, and labor is only going to get more expensive. And now you have this challenge where you're having labor crunches as well. So some of it's about efficiency. Some of it's about how you use your labor because you may not have a choice because it is just becoming both expensive and there's just not as much of it there. It's a, there's a labor crunch right now for sure. We know that. Again, 12 months from now, we'll see. Well, as, as interesting as this conversation has been, I know you and I both enjoyed it. All of the folks coming to the podcast are not here just for the two of us. 
certainly we will have advertised that we have um, a guest with us today, as we will every time we come out and do this. And luckily this time, it's a guy who has a ton of experience from Kitchen United, former CEO there. Uh, Jim Collins, in addition, folks may not realize is a a success as a serial entrepreneur in tech outside of the restaurant industry, but is also a restaurant operator himself of, and I got to get this right, Town Kitchen and Grill. uh, Which has a great bar, knowing Jim. Yeah. And I got to say Montrose, California. And so go check them out. So welcome, Jim. What do you think about the virtual brands and, you know, what's going on in this space? First of all, it's a a pleasure to be here. It's uh, always fun to talk to the two of you. And I think the great news for restaurants and for restaurateurs everywhere is that, you know, we're really entering a new Wild West in the industry where a combination of giant increases in consumer demand for off-premise dining the giant sort of pent up demand created by a year of COVID-19, crazy turnover in storefront and real estate and everything else, partly driven by COVID-19, partly driven by just a fatigued industry going into COVID-19 is just creating opportunity and shift and, uh, you know, fascinating things to talk about for people who love to talk about restaurants for sure. So you know, whether you're talking about virtual brands, you know, which I think is a, a really interesting phenomenon or all of the different permutations of, you know, what, what ghost kitchens look like these days. Uh, there's, there's just a lot out there. How did you, how did you get into the industry? I know a little bit about your background before the restaurant industry, but how'd you get into the restaurant industry itself? Wackiness. I was running and ran a series of tech companies over, over a course of years and thoroughly enjoyed that decided after I sold the last one off, I don't know, going on 10 years ago now that I was just tired of staring at people in computer monitors all the time, sort of the irony exactly. But, you know, just the idea that, you know, in a restaurant, your customer's right there. You know, if there's a problem, you got to solve it right now. You know, figuring out how to please people and host them and, and, you know, give them an experience that's an extraordinary experience that causes them to want to come back was a really fun thing and, and different challenge for me. And so that's what sucked me in. And I, you know, bought town and uh, I was telling somebody the other day, I spent 465 days straight there um, when I bought the restaurant. I mean, I went home and showered, but outside of that, I was, you know, at the restaurant. Let's talk about the convergence of your, your, your backgrounds, right? Your background as a restaurant operator, your, your background having sort of been a part of the startup and running of Kitchen United for the last several years, you know, the sort of godfather of ghost kitchens, if you will, if you will. Talk about the challenges of replicating that customer experience outside of the restaurant itself. And, and is that sustainable going forward? We had no choice the last year, right? The big question is whether it's been a complete sea change in behavior or whether the pendulum will swing back the other way. And I'm just curious how you view it as a, as a restaurant operator. And, and I'm not a guy who is going to tell you that I'm, you know, a hundred percent on my, you know, sort of future cast, you know, perspectives, but I would tell you that, you know, at least in my experience, whenever there's a flood, you know, there's, there's giant pools of water left behind from that, from that flood. And what we, what we definitely saw in COVID-19 was a flood of demand for off-premise dining created by the fact that the consumer just couldn't eat on-premise, right? But I think what happened during that flood is that a lot of consumers realized that, hey, you know what? It's kind of fun to you know, go out and grab some food from your 
favorite local restaurant, bring it home and binge on some fun Netflix series. I don't think that's going away. But quite frankly, you know, I think another good question is whether the industry has the bandwidth to support both the pent-up demand for in-house dining and that level of off-premise dining all at once, even with a lot of these new options. Because even, you know, look, we, we talk about them a lot, but there still aren't, you know, if, if you look at the total number of restaurants in the U.S., it's, that number is somewhere over 600,000, right? Actual individual restaurant properties. And then you look at the total number of ghost kitchen facilities that have been constructed over the course of the last couple of years. That's a couple hundred facilities, depending on how you define ghost kitchen. The fact is that if the consumer continued to eat restaurant food off-premise at the pace they were and came and ate on-premise, I think a lot of people working in restaurant kitchens would just keel over dead, you know, from overwork. So where it's going is interesting, but I think the clear consumer trend is uh, a trend toward enjoying the convenience of being able to uh, eat restaurant food wherever they want. Yeah. So it's interesting, Jimmy, talk about, you know, those are new technologies, right? Online ordering, the availability of off-premise, ghost kitchens, virtual brands, those are all technology-enabled innovations in the industry. How do you how do you think about the other technology innovations that are needed to sustain that kind of business model, right? With all of that new demand coming in, um, some of the challenges in the labor market, um, you know, are there are there things that you've seen in the past that have been great solutions around those those challenges, or that that you're looking at today, wishing existed, or you know, are looking at uh, on the cusp of? Yeah, there's there's a there's a ton of stuff I wish existed. Um, I think I think somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago. You know, what do I think the biggest challenge facing the restaurant industry is right now? And and I would say the the without a doubt, you know, the the answer to that question is labor. Wall Street Journal's had articles on it. New York Times just had an article on it. And every every restaurant publication is talking about the challenges of labor. If you all, all anybody needs to do to know labor labor is a challenge is just walk down Main Street. And look in the window of every restaurant on Main Street. There's going to be a help wanted sign in almost every window. And if there isn't one in the window, it's because the restaurant's closed, right? So labor's a giant challenge. And, you know, I'm not a big subscriber or believer that the restaurant employee is just not returning to work because, you know, uh, it's turned into a welfare state or something where they're, they're just staying home collecting federal dollars. But, in my own personal experience, I'm not seeing any of that. And none of the restaurateurs I'm talking to are seeing any of that either. What they're seeing is, you know, quite frankly, that the labor pool they used to employ, which was by and large a legal immigrant labor pool, is not there. And what happened is, you know, quite frankly, we had um, four years of pretty challenging environment for uh, an immigrant community, followed by one year of a pandemic. And, you know, if one thing didn't chase them home, the other thing did. And the, and the big question is, are they going to come back? And, you know, the answer in, in many cases is no, because, you know, they've found other things to do where they are. And, 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 and if they are coming back, they're coming back to uh, jobs being offered to them by, you know, companies like UPS or Amazon or, you know, other companies like this that can, you know, it's, it's really the restaurant community just can't compete with the kind of, you know, hours and benefits packages and, and wages that those companies can pay. And so I think that's the biggest challenge. So Chipotle, right? The, there's been a lot of talk about how Chipotle has gone to $15 uh, in all of its locations and offering referral bonuses. 
There's other stories out there of other brands that are offering, you know, the same wage, if not higher wages. And again, sign on bonuses for regular frontline employees, let alone managerial positions and stuff. I mean, is that going to solve the problem? Because then you run into, of course, the operational challenge that your labor costs become explosive, potentially. How do you how do you figure restaurants are going to address that balancing act? Yeah, look, I, I, I don't think $15 is going away. Honestly, I'm not sure that's such a bad thing. You know, I think, quite frankly, paying your employees a living wage is, you know, the responsibility of an industry in general and figuring out how to structure cost so that you can do that is 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 an important you know, element of that. I, I do think the fact that labor cost is rising and it's not going to go back means that restaurateurs have to be more efficient in terms of how they use labor. I think as an industry, quite frankly, we've always been a little reckless about, well, we just solve every problem with, you know, another couple hours here and another couple hours there. I don't think that's really an option anymore. And I think now, you know, make making sure that, you know, the restaurant, whether it's a chain or a single, you know, establishment or whatever is, is really focused on using the labor to the best possible effect to serve the customer in the best possible way. And then not, you know, figuring out how not to use the labor in uh, situations or areas where, it's not going to have the impact on the direct impact on the consumer. I've spent a lot of time over the course of the last couple of years and, and particularly over the course of the last year, looking at, you know, visiting with companies that are producing restaurant technologies, you know, et cetera. And, you know, and I sort of see things falling into one of two classes, you know, in general, I see a lot of stuff that uh, quite frankly, looks to me like stuff that's trying to replace labor whether that's robotics or, you know, what have you, you know, there's, there's a lot of work being done in those categories and delivery, you know, robotic delivery, um, in preparation, robotic preparation, you know, even in service, robotic service, et cetera. I think that that those technologies will have their day. I think the, the time for, you know, robotics is coming, but at least so far we're, we're not seeing really practical solutions. Right. The things that I think make more sense are technologies that make the people that you have more efficient. Because, you know, the, the, the thing is, I've already got, you know, I'm a restaurateur. I've already got those employees, right? And what I want to try to do is figure out how to make sure that, that you know, like I said, they're using every minute of every day doing the best possible thing to make the consumer's experience the best possible experience. And so there's very low tech solutions for that. It's, it's, a, it's anathema to a lot of chefs and restaurateurs that, you know, their produce company would do their chopping for them, you know, because their carrot cube is just that much more perfect than the 100% carrot cube they get from their produce supplier. But, you know, I got to tell you, if, if the produce supplier charges you the same for the carrot already diced as they charge you for the carrot not diced, not getting the carrot diced is kind of, you know, getting the carrot diced is kind of a no brainer, right? So there's some low tech stuff like that, that that's right there. And then the really interesting stuff is the stuff that's, you know, starting to work on, you know, helping restaurants plan for, you know, what their workload needs to be on a, on a daily basis, based on what their demand is going to be on a daily basis, you know, understanding how that's going to impact your staffing requirements on an up and down basis, uh, train, making it e easy enough to do the job that the training cycle becomes shorter 
right? So an average new restaurant employee sticks around a restaurant an average of about six weeks. Kind of a startling number, right? So, so you know, basically what that means, the way, you know, if you really look at the data, you have a huge number of people who start working for restaurants today and they stop working for restaurants tomorrow, right? So they, they literally, they don't make it through a day. There's another pretty big group of people that make it through about a week and then they're, they're just not there anymore. So along those lines, Jim, is there, as you think about it, you know, when you've solved a problem, it could be in the restaurant industry or in another industry, but, but, but trying to stick with the restaurant industry where you've solved a challenge, leveraged some technology and, you know, it worked or it didn't work. What was the big, biggest learning you've had from, you know, whether it's a labor problem or other problem that, that, that you've had taken away from a, a solution? Yeah. I mean, look, I think my biggest learning, I, I spent, I, I had hair at one point in my life. Somebody saw a wedding picture. I had hair like down to my shoulders, you know, it's feathered back, you know, like lots of hair. Running technology is a great way to lose hair. And, and I think that the biggest mistakes that, you know, technology companies make and the biggest sort of learning opportunity is make sure that, that you're, you're always focused on what's, mo- what's the most important problem to solve and then go solve that problem and don't worry about all the periphery right? The periphery will take care of itself. Solve, you know, like come to the simplest solution set, solve the simplest problem, and then solve the next one and the next one and the next one after that. Don't try to solve, you know, a hundred problems in one release. It's just never going to work. This challenge that we have is a challenge that's, that is multiple layers of fabric, right? Deep. When you're looking at the top of the challenge, you're just looking at the top layer of the fabric. And you have to try to figure out how to see through those layers, understand how they're interrelate so that you can create a solution that that is going to be practically implementable when it gets to the to the end user. You're not because you're also talking about a multi-layer purchasing solution, a multi-layer deployment solution, right? With franchisors and franchisees in our marketplace with you know, sort of all these different things. So many companies go out of business because they try to boil the ocean, right? And I think the companies that are smart about focusing on solving a particular problem and doing it really well, you know, the restaurant industry is huge. The behemoth of a marketplace is, you know, giant capacity, you know, hundreds of millions of employees. It's, it's just, it's, it's almost mind boggling to think about how big that is. And so, if you pick a, if you pick a small problem and solve it, that's probably has a large revenue opportunity for you given the size of the industry. Yeah, I, and I think there are some great examples in the industry where um, some successes that we we could we could point to where they've focused on a single problem, solved that problem really well, and then they've been able to extend from that to solve additional problems that are adjacent, and that's worked out really well. Yeah, well, our, and, our, and or I was going to say you you go to solve one problem and you realize yeah you can solve three with the same methodology and technology, yeah. right? And that that's in itself progress. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, Jim, it's been great having you with us today. We really appreciate it. We, we don't want to take up your entire afternoon chatting with us, uh, although we could easily do that if there was beer or cocktails involved, I, <laughs> I understand. We've got a couple of questions just sort of you know, uh, on a tangent that we like to bounce off our guests. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go first. I'll start with, with mine, which is... Um, and I think I might have a sense for this, but I'll ask you anyway. What is your secret guilty pleasure uh, food or meal? <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, you know, Mexican street food is kryptonite to me. It's like 
you just show me a fish taco in Baja or, you know, a, a carnitas t- a taco from Guisados in Los Angeles. And there's just no way for me not to just suck that down. So. Okay. My, my, uh, my rapid fire. So uh, what brand or company other than your own, do you admire most and why? I tend to really love brands that, you know, they pick a thing and they do it great. And, and they, they're authentic to that. They're just, you know, they're rooted in, in that cause. And so when I look across, you know, a lot of different industries, I'll look at companies like REI, right. Is a really good solid, you know, uh, I, you know, I love hiking. So like that, that, that's an easy one in the restaurant industry, you know, frankly, um, brands like In-N-Out or Chick-fil-A or, you know, other brands like that, where, you know, they, they literally, this is what we do. We do it well. We really focus on, on a great customer experience and they, they, and they deliver, you know, th- those are the brands that, that, you know, I, I tend to admire. So what is the, uh, what's the most interesting thing you've read, watched, or listened to lately? Um, no, I, that's, 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 that's sort of, you'd be like crazy bored at my playlist is, is, uh, you know, a combination of food TV and, and, you know, uh, recipe documentaries and stuff like that. Um, so I just finished a book called Braiding Sweetgrass and, and I wish I could remember the author's name, but it's, it is, it is a, it's a fantastically eye-opening book about the constant interaction between the natural world and the human world of all of those kinds of things. And it really honestly sort of shifted my worldview a little bit. And at 56, shifting my worldview isn't something that's terribly, Anton would tell you it's not easy to get me to change my mind about, you know, much of anything. And so shifting my worldview is a pretty big accomplishment. Great book, uh, would highly recommend it. I, I will tell you if it's shifting Jim's worldview and it's got him talking about it like he is, then that's, uh, that that's not only impressive, but also I, I always find it amazing how passionate you can get about stuff. And it sounds like there's some inspiration in there too. So maybe, maybe that leads to my, my last question, yep. which is sort of a, a bigger picture question for you. Um, and a little bit about what this podcast sort of centers on, which is if you could create a restaurant innovation out of thin air, I'm sure you've thought about it. What would it be? The only reason I really thought about this, to be honest, is because you guys sent me these questions ahead of time, which, <laughs> you know, probably makes my, my previous answers much less explainable. But, you know, if, if, if there was a way to force every cook to like take an extra beat to look at the every order before they render it, you know, a way to force every order taker to wait a beat before they enter the order, a way to make the software interfaces just that much clearer. So when somebody's entering an order from outside, that order comes in exactly right every time. I think honestly, uh, that would be huge for, for everybody in the restaurant industry, but, uh, trying to actually solve for human error is something that humans have been working on for quite a long time. So, you know, luckily or unluckily, I think that's, you know, probably something that's still a ways off. But it, but it does relate to your original point, right? Which is how do you create a consistent customer experience where, you know, you know what you're going to get every single time and it's what you're looking for. And with, you know, with human interaction, that's often the, the X factor to, to the extent that you can manage that, the better experience you'll deliver. Exactly. Excellent. Well, once again, thanks, Jim, very much for spending uh, some of your time with us this afternoon. We really appreciate it. Um, I want to remind everyone uh, listening, watching, if you're watching, uh, to subscribe if you're if you like what we're doing. To subscribe to the Perfect Ingredient Podcast, um, you can send us an email to perfectpod at perfect.tech or perfectpod 
at perfectco.com. Either of those email addresses work. Uh, We'd also like to thank the team at ThatCast who are uh, helping us with the technical support and getting this uh, podcast up and going. And Michael Wolf at ICR, who plays the role of uh, producer for us and and helps us make sure that all the uh, trains run on time and we actually say something uh, coherent and cogent. Again, Anton, I always love spending time with you. We don't get to spend enough time together. And, you know, as we get back, Jim, we'll owe you a drink. When we get back into face-to-face events later this year, we will find you um, and we will have some sake or pisco or something. We'll we'll spend some time Gin. together. Gin. <laughs> Gin. I, 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 either way, I think we should all meet at the town and, and uh, be glad that we can do so in person. And then it's my awesome. gin. That's even better. <laughs> right. Excellent. Good to Thanks, see you guys. Guys.